the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As you no doubt know, these days we are following our Lord in the account of the Bread of Life, in which our Lord speaks of himself as, as that, the Bread of Life. And um, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in him. If he does not, he has, he has no life in him. And he talks about it as being real food and real drink. That is, that this was not simply symbolic. It's really the discourse about the Holy Eucharist. And this explanation, which St. John goes on in depth about, leads some of his disciples to get a little bit uncomfortable. As we saw in this morning's Gospel of the Mass, it says, many of the disciples of Jesus who were listening said, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that, this, that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said, does this shock you? You? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. So they were, they were quite, well, that, they were quite shocked by this. And some of them, we are told, stopped going around with Jesus. They said, that's enough, we can't, we can't do this. This is what St. John says. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer walked with him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. These are beautiful words uh, from St. Peter himself that, of course, express his faith and that we want to say now too, you are the Holy One of God. Peter responds really for all and he responds for us. He was perhaps the most spontaneous. He was the most daring to say that truth. You have the words of eternal life. Maybe we don't understand exactly what you're saying here, what you mean, but we know you have the words of eternal life. You know, not many just couldn't understand this idea of the bread of life, the idea that this was flesh, that the, the idea that we had to drink his blood, it, it was, sounded creepy. It didn't, didn't, people didn't make sense of it. And so Peter answered, for those Christians there, or that is, 
the apostles and all Christians throughout the whole of history who have decided to stay with Jesus no matter what. We could translate it, no way I'm going to stay, no way am I ever going to leave you. And for us, this will be something that will be asked of us in front of any kind of permanent commitment. Whether it's a commitment to get married, whether it's a commitment to apostolic celibacy, whether it's a commitment to anything well in life, permanent. I suppose some people have no permit commitments that are permanent in their life, I suppose. right? But even their commitments to their friends and to their family. And, you know, like, like in marriage, they talk about the eight-year, what do they call it, the eight-year light that goes off on the dashboard. Right? So you get married, people are happy, they're enthusiastic, they're, yes, I want to do this for my whole life, permanent commitment through sickness, through health, through richness, through poverty. And then they arrive more or less at eight years of that enthusiasm. And it's like when you're driving in a car and on the dashboard, this yellow light or maybe orange light goes off. And it's basically saying, uh, you're going to have to pull over because the gas tank is pretty low, right? And I don't know, you know, you all know the experience of driving with a car where, the, where that light is on. It's very nerve wracking because it just, you know, you just barely have enough time to keep going. It's stressful. You just realize you have to charge the batteries. You have to fill the gas tank. And and this is why we want to be we want to be persevering, persevering. We want to have that virtue to persevere, even when our gas tank is low. And uh, perseverance is that virtue that allows us to keep on steady, to, to, to persist and to be loyal in spite of difficulties, in spite of obstacles, in spite of discouragement, in spite of having that, a low gas tank. And where there are obstacles, perseverance is absolutely needed. And saints have had tons of both. They've had obstacles, they've had difficulties, but they've also had perseverance. They hung in there. And of course, there are also people who have not been persevering, that have not hung in there with our Lord, that have left, like those disciples in chapter 6 of St. John. And, but for others to see that some have been not faithful, it's actually a stimulus to be saints, to be holier, to be holier. And in many ways, we could say that we have to persevere through this pandemic. We have to persevere. We have to hang in there. And because, as we know, everybody is affected by this pandemic. Some are affected because they get sick. Others are affected because they lose their job. Others are affected because they can't see their family. Others are affected because they get depressed and they're alone in their apartments and isolated and are sick and tired of Zoom, right? And, uh, or they can't go to Mass or they can't socialize. You know, there's no wonder that all the liquor stores are open and pretty full with lineups. It's as though people just want to drown their sorrows <laughs> in, in uh, you know, some nice smoky bourbon. So, well, when St. Peter saw that among the multitude of disciples, there were those who were leaving Jesus. 
Well, he decided all the more, and this must have helped the apostles as well, he decided all the more to stay. And sure enough, he did. Now, see, Peter, did he make mistakes? Of course. He even denied Jesus. He, he denied him. Like, like, just some lady who just asked him, are you not one of them? Like, what could that lady have done? Probably not much, but he was you know, filled with human respect, and he, he got afraid, and he thought, what could happen to me? I, may, I might get arrested as well. So he denied Jesus three times. But, but then, afterwards, he also repented. He persevered, and he even died by being crucified upside down. He was faithful. He was loyal, right into the end, as all the other apostles were. Not all the disciples, but the apostles, yes. Well, of course, Judas was not faithful. And there are many stories like that, like St. Maximilian Kolbe. He had decided, in fact, to leave the seminary when his mom visited him to explain that his brother wanted to join the seminary too. So he said, whoa, my brother wants to join too. So he decided not to leave, and he stayed. And then not only did he stay in the seminary, as we know, he became a priest. He started becoming very active in the missions. He went to Japan, he started some kind of magazine, uh, and then, of course, we know he, he died a martyr in uh, Auschwitz. I think it was Auschwitz. Very famous uh, account of perseverance until the end. And he was an example there as he was in the starvation bunker when people were just, you know, just in agony, and he kept serene. He said, we've got to hang in here. I heard a story of a young priest who was very moved when he was chatting with a 16-year-old lad, a young fellow who had decided at a relatively young age to follow God in a life of apostolic celibacy. It's not exactly clear, but I presume he might have been a numerary, or I don't know. But uh, And in fact, a good number of his best friends also did the same thing. Right? And they committed their lives to the same vocation. But over time, all his friends ended up leaving the vocation and living kind of mundane lives. And they, he said to the priest, they have, they have all gone, all of them. And he was literally like breaking down. He was crying. They have all left me alone. And so as he was talking, he saw a crucifix there next to the table there where he was seated with, with the priest and he took the crucifix and he put it in his hands and and he he, he said um, but he said with tears in his eyes I will not leave him alone I will not I'd rather die I'd rather die and the priest was trying to hold it together because he was getting very moved by he was you could say quite speechless at the desire of this young fellow to be well, to be faithful until the end. And so, we too, we want to be faithful to our faith. We want, as a result of this pandemic, to grow in sanctity, grow in piety, grow in doing our, our duties, and, and see that when we come out of this, which inevitably we will, who knows how long it's going to go on, but that we will be better. We will be somehow better and somehow certainly uh, transformed, right? even if we have uh, suffered uh, from this. You probably know how St. Bridget of Sweden, she 
she had some tremendous visions and she lived in like the 13th century or I think it was the 13th or 14th century at a time when the popes were in Avignon and there was great upheaval and division in the church and and she prayed for the pope to go from Avignon back to Rome this was Pope Urban V and indeed he went back he went back but then he he stayed only for three years and then he went back to Avignon. I guess the food was better there or something, I don't know, but uh, he went back. So, so later on it was St. Catherine of Siena's efforts that resulted in the, the Pope going permanently back to Rome. Right? It was a part of the history of the church, these upheavals. Right? And, uh, and so Bridget called upon the, the faithful because of her own mystical experiences, to meditate on the sacred wounds of our Lord. The sacred wounds. We know the wounds, right? The, the wounds on the hands and the feet and the side. There was also another wound that is not often talked about, and it's the wound on, on the Lord's cheek that he received from Judas, when Judas kissed Jesus and said, uh, Master, you know, like it was like a fake... Uh, you know, oh, I'm so happy to see you. And he kissed him, and Jesus says, friend, friend, is it with a kiss that you betray, you know, your master, you know, friend. And that, that act of defiance on the part of Judas, with that kiss, left, uh, left a deep wound on, on our Lord's cheek. And, uh, and so she in her mystical union, said, we have to meditate on these wounds. And she, she saw blood on his hands, blood on his feet, and so forth, and, and she kind of like, meditating on that, she felt the pain. And uh, for her, it was not just a token souvenir. And they, in artwork, it became symbols. Uh, you can see in some stained glass, the, the, the hands, the feet, the side. And the, the wounds stayed in her head. They hovered in her imagination. They seeped in, and she just couldn't get them out. And then she had visions of the child Jesus with the, the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph. That's, that's where we get the scenes of, you know, the, the, how do you call it, the paintings of Mary and Joseph there in, the, in, in Bethlehem. And so, but she... It, for her to be faithful, it helped her to meditate on those wounds that our Lord suffered out of love for us. And a, a wound, what is a wound? What is a wound? A wound comes as a result of being inflicted with a hurt, with a, some kind of hurt. We have a wound. Moral wounds can be, the moral wounds we received if we've been, we've received some criticism, or an insult, right? We are insulted somehow, or humiliated, like a hurtful remark. Somebody laughs at us about something and everybody laughs. Right? It could also be physical scars from like battle, like in, or in an accident, you can be left with a, I don't know, you know, with a big uh, scar right here on the forehead because you had a car accident, right? I had an uncle who, uh, who had a big forehead and he had a big, big scar right here. And he looked really tough. And um, I remember asking him, Uncle, how did you get that 
wound on your it was like more like a hole it was like it was like a pretty thing a gash you know he said well when I was uh, eight year old we went tobogganing and your father was in the no I was in the front your father was in the back that's right and we went through the snow right and then they came to a a um, a fence, right? One of those fences, and they went underneath the fence, and the, the fence went right on him. But my father got saved because he got protected by him who was in front. And you know, it just was a scar that opened. It was a light scar, really. It wasn't that, but it got infected, and, and that's how he, he was left with a permanent scar. And uh, from when he was eight years old, and uh, so it uh, it just. It, well, it was an occasion to tell stories and stuff, I suppose, but uh, but we all have these wounds, and we will probably have wounds as a result of this pandemic, too, right? Like, think of uh, Al Capone, right? Al Capone, he was a famous gangster in the 20s, and uh, in 1917, Capone was in a, in a literally a ballroom brawl, because he insulted some lady and then that lady's brother came to her defense and they had a fight and he got slashed in the in the face somehow. And in fact, there were three indelible scars on his face, right on the throat, on the side, in the bang, right there. And, um, and of course, it was a retaliation and protection of this lady. And because Capone was, he had too much to drink, he was proud and those marks that he was left with he didn't like them of course and he tried to cover them up every time they took a photo that he turned his head so that they couldn't see it and actually the press would call him scarface that's where the word scarface came from and he dis just really disliked that nickname and uh, he sometimes would uh, would say that he got that in war when he never even served in the military. I mean, he didn't get that in war. He got that in a, in a ballroom brawl. That's it, right? And so for him, that, that wound seemed to, wasn't, it wasn't painful anymore. It was just a scar. But, but it, it, it seemed to continuously cause this harm. But for others, they're like badges. They're like badges and testimonies of a struggle. Like for soldiers... You know, that, that like a, a soldier who has some kind of scar, some kind of wound, that really raises their, their standing with their confreres. Or like a veteran, you see a veteran limping. Right? Or a scar or something, uh, uh, right? Uh, from torture, what, who knows what. These are like medals for these guys because they persevered through it. And maybe you and I, we'll come out of this pandemic with some kind of limp. Some kind of limp. Maybe even a scar on our face from wearing the masks too much, right? But uh, we've got to get through this and hold fast to our faith that God has a plan here. And to accept the limitations imposed upon us, the restrictions imposed, without becoming resentful, without becoming resentful at God or angry at God or, or for that matter, even possibly more lazy 
or isolated from each other. We still have to reach out. We still have to, we have a, still a duty to stay with Jesus. We still have a duty to reach out to others. Maybe we can't go physically and stuff like that, but there are other ways we can do it. And uh, we can't leave him alone. We have to keep at it. Just because we can't go to Mass physically doesn't mean we can't in some way be faithful and go deeper. In some way. And we have to feel a deep, um, you could say that, a deep sense of uh, solidarity. And the best way I would say that that solidarity with others can happen is that we, during this pandemic now, and it will be after as well, but that we kind of ratchet up our desire to struggle, to be better, to be more cheerful, not to, let the, not to let this get us down, even though it's understandable. But, okay, but this is our, this is our responsibility. We have to be responsible. And, uh, you know, at the other end, or even you could say, when we stand in front of our Lord, after a long life, we have to stand there, like, squeezed out like a lemon. Right? We could say, Lord, I went through... World War II, I went through, no, you didn't go through World War II, but you could say, I went through the pandemic of 2020, I went through, and then all the kinds of things, you know. I went through the true administration, I went through, I don't know what, you know. We'll, we'll have lots of things to list that we had to go through, right? And our Lord would say, oh, you went through the, oh, you went through the pandemic, oh, good. Okay, well, that's pretty good. But we can't arrive there with well, ma- well manicured body or fingernails clean and uh, everything in place, right? We have to arrive there, well, with a bruised and battered body. That is, like a soldier, soldiers are dirty when they come out of war. They don't come out there perfectly. They do that when they're in ceremonial dress, I suppose. They're nice and clean, but... Uh, they are, they look pretty messy. They look pretty dirty. And so we have to appear there with the, the wounds from our battle of love. Our wounds from our battle of love. This idea of the spiritual combat, the ascetical struggle. It was first, uh, the idea came with this uh, Italian um, monk or, or abbot in Italy. The, his name was Lorenzo Scupoli. Lorenzo Scupoli, and he had a book, he wrote a book called The Spiritual Combat, and it was really one of the first spiritual reading books written just for lay people in the 16th century. And his idea was that ordinary people, they have to struggle. It's not just doing, like, you know, practices of piety. And uh, he wanted them to lose the fear of struggle, lose the fear of this combat. It's not a bad thing. And because faith is not just about certain practices uh, or certain obligations or the rights we have with the church or before, it's, it's struggle against my laziness, struggle against being blasé and, and uh, sensuality. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I want to be faithful to you. One way for us to be faithful is to be 
to get up early in the morning, like that's we all know that, right? The heroic minute, like get up right away and go for it. Right? Keep at it, even though you think you're losing. I don't know if you're familiar with this painting, but you can look it up. There's a very famous painting painted around the 1920s or so by a guy called George Bellows. He's a American painter who would paint a lot of scenes from boxing matches in, I think, mainly in Chicago area. And in around 1920 or something like that, um, there was a big, uh, a big fight between a fellow by the name of Dempsey. I think it was, I think his name was Joe Dempsey, but I don't remember now. I uh, can't remember his first name, but it was De Dempsey and Firpo. Firpo was a was an Argentinian boxer. He was huge, and, but Dempsey was definitely the preferred guy. Everybody wanted Dempsey to win. He was, a, I think he was American, and he was, he'd already won a lot of, uh, you know, titles and stuff. And um, in those days, in the 20s, lots of people went to watch boxing. Of course, there was no TV, so just they would pack these arenas and there were journalists recounting, and then, uh, you know, they would tell exactly what happened, uh, a jab to the left, a jab to the right, and everybody's listening intently. And in this intense, action-packed painting, you see Dempsey, he's just thrown out, you know, a right swing, and you can see Firpo flying back into the crowd, and he's flipped over the rings, and the journalists below are like that, and he's, it looks like he's about to land onto the journalists, and everybody's going like that. It's an action-packed painting. It's amazing. And uh, if you look at that painting, you say, wow, Dempsey knocked the guy out, and Firpo lost the, lost the, lost the fight. Because Firpo is the guy flying out, right? But then when you read up about it, you see that Firpo is actually the guy who won. Because after being thrown out of the stage like that, or out of the ring, he hit his head on the back of somebody's typewriter. He got so incensed that he got back in the ring and whacked him. <laughs> and that knocked Bellows out. Or, or Dempsey, rather, knocked him out. And that was the end of the, the battle. So he didn't give up. He did not give up, even though he flew literally out of the ring. And we must never give up. And so let us ask our Blessed Mother to give us a spirit of struggle and a spirit of perseverance and ultimately a real spirit of Fidelity. That's, that's why we do that. Why, that's why we struggle. That's why we are persevering out of fidelity. Our Blessed Mother will give us the courage, right? the, the joy to, be, to do that. Not to be afraid, especially not to be afraid of the struggle. It's worthwhile. In Italian, they say, coraggio, coraggio. In, in Spanish, they say, animo. In English, we don't say anything. But uh, <laughs> I don't know what we say. We say, go for it. You know, but uh, it's not as good. But um, our Lord is saying to us, go for it. St. Peter is saying, let's go for it and be faithful. And thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. 
my Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.